And I remember I was wearing one of my favorite sundresses that day because it was a warm day. And um, and it I just felt weird because I was all, I had come from the office. So I was wearing this nice dress and my cardigan and, and I was all done up with my makeup and my hair. And I'm sitting in this waiting room and I'm about 20, 20, 25 years younger than most people in that room. So they're looking at me like, are you waiting for your mom? And, and I was, you know, everybody else is bald and, and you know, puffy because they're in chemo and I'm there with hair. And so I felt really out of place in that waiting room and I, it just didn't click what was going to happen. So they took me in and the nurse, you know, did my vitals and they take your weight and everything. And she said, okay, you're going to see the gynecologic oncologist and he's just, you know, he'll be here in a second. And they took my MRI results. And then he walked in, he sat down, he looked at me and he's like, okay, so it looks like you've had a recurrence of the cancer that you had last year. And that was the first time that anybody had said to me, you have cancer. And I, for a moment, like, it was like, it's like you, when, you know, uh, something you know something loud goes off near your ear and all of a sudden you just lost all your senses in a way and you're you know you're dizzy and you're disoriented and it, you know, the wind's been knocked out of you and so and like all I could hear was okay I have cancer I have cancer and I, I remember I looked at him and I was my mouth was open and I couldn't all I could say was I have cancer and he looked at me and he's like Yes, yes, you have cancer. You've had cancer. You had cancer before. And I said, no one told me this. I said, she never told me this. She said it was benign. And he got really frustrated. He's like, no, it's not benign. It's cancer. It's cancer. You have cancer. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. This episode of Medical Error Interviews is called The Gift of Cancer. I sit down with Kelly Ann Bronco and talk about her missed diagnosis 
how she ultimately did get a diagnosis of cancer, and how the medical error has impacted her life. In the context of Kellyanne's story, the gift of cancer takes on multiple meanings depending on one's perspective. Faced with her own mortality and a medical and legal system set up to protect physicians, Kellyanne has had to forge her own path to meaning. And she shares with us why forgiveness is the gift you give to yourself. This is my conversation with Kellyanne Bronco. And a note of caution, some people may be triggered by Kellyanne's medical experiences. Okay, so let's uh, start back in childhood. Where did you grow up? How, what did you study at school? Everything pre-illness. I was born in Toronto at St. Mike's and uh, I grew up in um, Toronto and Queen West neighborhood in the 80s when it was very different than it is now. It was mostly actually immigrant families. Uh, my parents were immigrants. My mother came to Canada 1960 from the Azores, which is part of the, uh, Portugal. It's an islands off the coast of Portugal. And my dad came later on in his 20s after his military service in the 70s. So we grew up on a street with where a lot of people related to us. We all tend to cluster together, but it was a really, you know, it was a great time and a great place to be a kid because everybody was working class. Everybody knew each other, which means if you got in trouble somewhere, you were acting up by the time you got home, your mom knew. Um, and it was, a, it was an awesome place to grow up. Um, so, but then uh, in the late 80s, we moved to Mississauga and uh, I spent, I think most from about age 10 up <laughs> in Miss, mostly in Mississauga. Um, Mississauga my, uh, is a suburb of Toronto. Yes, it's just uh, west of Toronto. And, you know, when we moved here, I think there was about 250,000 people. And now we're pushing the 1 million mark. So it's, uh, it's become a large city onto itself outside of Toronto. And it's changed a lot. But back then it was, it was like a small little town almost. It was, uh, it was still a great place to grow up as well. And um, my, my parents, um, my mother worked in an office in different like administrative capacities. And my dad was a foreman for contractors. He built most of Markham and York region because in the 80s that was the big boom was out in Markham, Richmond Hill area. And he actually had an accident at work and he uh, had a brain injury, a traumatic brain injury. So that kind of changed the landscape of our childhood. He was a difficult person before his brain injury. And so um, he was very difficult afterwards. So, and uh, my parents didn't have the greatest marriage. You know, they were kids raising kids. They got married young and cause that's what you did when you're an immigrant, you come, you get a job, you get married, you have kids, you buy a house, you work, and then you retire and then you die. That's life. So 
um, you know, that's what they did. And his accident really, um, you know, he's, he couldn't work. Um, so you were uh, only about nine or 10 when your dad had his accident. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, that was my first introduction into the healthcare system. Really so we, compounds uh, the effect on your family. You've got an injured father. You're dealing with this injury, this permanent injury, the loss of income, the stress of having to yeah. get that income and all of the other stuff. Yeah, it's just the last thing an injured person needs is more stress. Yeah. But we, uh, when was your encounter with the healthcare system? So I was always a sickly kid. I always had a lot of issues with my stomach and my intestines. And for a long time, they couldn't, they were just like, okay, she needs to eat more greens. Like my poor mother schlepped me back and forth to the pediatrician and to sick kids because I was just a sickly kid. And, you know, they didn't really, they were like, oh, she's just constipated, you know, feed her more greens, give her some more fiber. And, you know, and I just grew up thinking, I just have a touchy stomach. I, you know, I'm, you know, I just, certain things I can't eat. Like I was lactose intolerant, fine. Um, and it wasn't until my twenties when I started to have really bad anxiety and panic attacks. And it was related to all the discomfort that I had in my tummy and in my intestines that um and i was terrified to leave the house because i'm like what if i get sick and what if i'm not feeling well and so it took a while so after that i went back to my family doctor and it took a while to get her on board to send me to a gastroenterologist because she was adamant it's irritable bowel syndrome you have anxiety we'll send you to a psychiatrist but we can't do anything to help with your stomach and i said i don't think so like this is and I was exhausted all the time. I've always had brain fog. And I said, no, no, I think something's wrong. So it was a fight and I had to fight her. And at that time I was actually working in the public sector and I had spoken to some of my colleagues who were in the health sector. And they were like, if you ask for a referral, they can't deny you, like that's the law. So I went back in and I said, listen, I need, I'm going to see gastroenterologists, whether you like it or not. So I'll wait while you write up the referral. And she did it because she's actually an amazing doctor. And within six months, I got in to see the gastroenterologist and like five minutes in the chair, she said, oh, you have celiac disease. I'm pretty sure you have celiac disease. And so we did the blood panel and we did the gastroscopy. And sure enough, I had celiac. So and, you know, the question becomes, like, how, how did I, like, when did this come about? She's like, you probably had it since you were a kid. And she, like, she was basically saying, you know, uh, she started talking about the different symptoms. She's like, well, when you were a kid, did you always have an upset stomach? Were you always constipated? Were you always tired? I said, well, yeah, that's my life. And uh, she was like, yeah, it was celiac disease. And people just don't, didn't know about it. So that, you know... So that was the beginning of it and having that fight with the doctor and to my GP's credit, I went back to her and I said, listen, this is what the gastroenterologist said. It's not IBS. Like we need to, uh, and I was kind of a bit of, uh, I was, I was angry. So I said, I told you so and blah, blah, blah. And she said, you know what? I'm sorry. Um, okay. Let's talk about your plan of care now. Like, what do we do next? And, and that's what I love about my family doctor is that 
she's always willing to learn. She's always willing uh, to expand her practice. And it's all, it is all about the patient. So it, and it led to a good conversation about, you know, I'm not, you know, I get some people come in here and they're, you know, I have a pain here and they're a bit hypochondriac. I said, but I'm not going to come in here unless I know it's serious, right? I know something's wrong. So I need you to take me seriously, right? This is not about treating symptoms. This is about getting to the root cause. And she agreed with me, which was great. So that was my introduction into the healthcare system. And that was only about two or three years before I started having symptoms um, uh, around the ovarian cancer, which is interesting. I can, do you want to go into that now? Yeah, so since a kid, you had the, all these stomach problems. And then when did you finally get the celiac disease? How old were you and I what was year was that? I was years old. And what year was that? 2009. Okay, so a quarter century if you've yeah. been living with and then you finally get a diagnosis. Uh, so 2009, you're 30 years old. Yeah. Uh, and then you, so you start avoiding gluten, and I guess that would help. Yeah, that help. All it is really is you adopt a gluten-free, wheat-free diet, um, and that was as simple as that. And it was amazing when we did the blood panel to confirm the diagnosis, and we did a gastroscopy where they went in and they took a look at my intestines. I was borderline suffering from malabsorption. So when my body was under duress at that point, and I, because I hadn't absorbed any minerals, nutrients, vitamins, nothing, right? Because basically what it, celiac does is when you ingest the gluten, your body thinks the gluten is, um, you know, an antibody, and it starts to attack your villi, which is how you absorb nutrients when it goes through your intestines. So my villi was actually non-existent and I was deficient in all vitamins. And I, you know, we ended up doing a bone density test and, you know, I have osteopenia, which for a 30 year old woman, which is the precursor to osteoporosis, is not good. And so, uh, yeah, 30 years later, you know, we, we caught it, which was good. And we were able through the diet, um, within a year, my intestines were starting to heal and I was feeling a lot better, but it was 30 years. Yeah, basically. So. Wow. Okay. And then your next uh, encounter with the healthcare system just alluded to your ovaries. Yes. Um, so in 2012, um, I, uh, in January, 2012, I stopped getting a period which was really odd for me because I was pretty consistent since I was 11 years old that every month I had a period and I wasn't, I wasn't sexually active. So there was no chance of me getting pregnant or being pregnant. So it was a bit, it was odd. Um, but sometimes like I had been on birth control pills for many years and sometimes, you know, pills stop working. Sometimes it's stress. And I was right at that point in my life, I was, selling a house, buying a new house. I changed jobs. Uh, it was, and I was, I had moved into a really high pressure, intense job. And, um, I thought it was just stress. And I thought maybe I got to change my birth control pill. Maybe it's not working anymore. You know, it, I didn't think about, I didn't worry about it right away, but as the months progressed and we got, and I got to, 
April, May, I was like, okay, this isn't right. This is not right. Like, because I didn't, I didn't even have PMS symptoms. Like it was pretty, you know, when you're a woman, you're pretty, you know, your cycle, especially by the time you get into later on in life, you know that, okay, week one, I feel normal by week two, I'm starting to get a little rough by week three, I'm starting to bloat up and tiresome. And none of that was happening, which was really odd. So I went to see my family doctor and I said, this isn't right. She goes, okay, yeah. So she sent me for an ultrasound and we did an ultrasound and she saw a mass on my right ovary. So she called me back in. She's like, yeah. She goes, it could be fibroids. It could be a cyst. She's like, we don't know, but I'm sending you to a gynecologist. So Took, of course, any time in Ontario you need to see a specialist, there's a wait. Um, so it took, I think I went to see her in August of 2012. So it took a couple of months to get in. And so how are you feeling waiting to find out more about what's going on with your body? It was stressful. Like it was, you're just like, what's going on? It's that, it's that unknown of what's going to happen, what's going on. Uh, why is this happening? Um, you know, uh, you don't know, is it going to come? Is it not going to, like, it's just the unknown just puts you, like, it's a, it's a real anxiety. Like, you just don't know what's going on. Is this something big? Is this something small? And, um, you know, my mother had always had fibroids and, and cysts and stuff. And she had, you know, I saw her, what she went through with going through your, um, DNCs and constantly in and out of the doctor's office. So I was like, maybe, hopefully it's just something like that and it's nothing serious, but you just don't know. It's just the unknown that always is the worst part of it. Like you just, and waiting and you get frustrated because you're like, why do I have to wait so long to see a specialist? Um, you know, and then of course I was a young woman at that point I was 32 and I was like, what's like, what if I want to have babies? Like, is this going to impact how I have babies? And I, was how you know and a lot of my friends were getting married and having babies in your and even waiting in the waiting room at the gynecologist's office um it was full of pregnant women so it's just it's it starts to wear on you and it's like okay what does what does this mean so many questions so many questions yeah. and so i went in there with all these questions and she asked me uh one question where she's like, well, do you have any other symptoms other than no period? Do you have any pain? And I was like, no, I don't have any other symptoms. And she kind of rolled her eyes and she's like, well, then it's nothing. Stop complaining. A lot of women would love not to have a period. And I was like, well, but this isn't normal for me. Like, why would I just stop getting a period? And she was just, she was really laissez-faire. And she was like, well, sometimes it happens. We'll just change your birth control pill. And she just, wrote a script and I said, well, don't you want, and she was ready to go out the door. She stood up and she was making her exit. And I said, well, don't you want to examine me? Like, don't you want to take a look? Do you, you know, she's like, oh, I guess. And it was, I've had lots of vaginal exams. That was probably one of the most uncomfortable uh, and, and awkward exams because you could, she was quite rough and you could just tell she just thought it was a waste of time. And uh, punishing you. Yeah, almost like, how dare you question me? I'm the doctor and I know it's best. It's nothing. And uh, 
so and she just left and that was it that was the appointment she's like um you'll follow up with your family doctor and what about the 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 mass they found it was small and it was she said it's probably just a cyst nothing to worry about unless it's giving you pain or other symptoms it'll go away on its own so i didn't have like they didn't run with ovarian cancer, uh, it's very common to track, it's an anti, an anti, what is it? It's called a cancer protein called CA125. So I never, nobody checked my CA125. Nobody thought maybe we should just do a biopsy. Um, you know, ovarian cancer doesn't run in my family, but we have cancer in my family, um, mostly on my mother's side with both women and men. Like it's, but none of that happened. She was like, it's just cyst just cyst she sent me away so and that how, was that was gyno number one is what i call her and how, how are you feeling leaving her office at that point i felt foolish right because we were i was like you feel like you know you know in your gut that something's wrong and but we're raised in this society where a doctor knows best and you don't question the authority of the doctor so I felt like, hey, I felt like an idiot because she basically, you know, called me hysterical <laughs> and said, you know, suck it up. And I was scared. And I, I questioned myself. I was like, maybe I'm wrong. Like, maybe I'm just, maybe I am being hysterical and this is nothing. And um, so then you get that insecurity, like, you start questioning yourself. Like, am I maybe I'm not right. And, you know, and then like she changed my birth control pill and that restarted my, my period. So then, uh, so that reinforced that, Oh God, you know what? I was just, you know, I was just being ridiculous and it's just the pill and okay. Everything was fine. Um, so which didn't feel good. Right. Cause I felt like, Oh, I wasted all this time and, uh, you know, and uh, it kind of reinforces that that whole idea that that power imbalance between a patient and a doctor where so I you know no wonder she was so upset it was really nothing, but it was <laughs> later on we found that out, so that was in two thousand and twelve so till the end of the year, I started getting regular periods they weren't quite right, like they weren't the usual that I had been accustomed to but I again I was like okay maybe it's the stress of all this maybe it's the different pill you know but it was coming so it was coming every month so I was like okay you know you just like whew I I you know everything's fine I'm cool so but then in January 2013 I stopped getting a period again and uh, I, f I actually had surgery in January 2013 to have my gallbladder out. So I thought maybe it's the stress of the surgery. So again, because I had this experience with this doctor, I was looking for like, I was like, oh, no, no, it's nothing serious. It's the stress of the surgery because I caught an infection while I was in the OR and I had been really ill and, the, and I'd never been under general anesthesia. So I was, I don't wake up well from general anesthesia. So I, I didn't, I was like, okay, you know what, let me just see how things go. Can we uh, so, sidetrack to the gallbladder? Yeah. So how did that, uh, what were the symptoms of that and the decision to have that operation? 
So that, that was happening I, parallel to what's going yes. on. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, so um, I had, uh, you know, the stress of all, so trying to figure out what was going on with my periods, I'd put on a lot of weight that year and I was actually pre-diabetic. And um, which is in my family, diabetes runs rampant. And uh, so I had gone on this kind of radical diet to lose weight to, because I'd seen what diabetes had done to my grandmother, to my mother. I was like, I'm not, I'm not going down this road. So I, I dropped a lot of weight in a very short amount of time, which then just uh, kind of irritated the gallbladder, which is very common when you do these kind of crazy fad diets where you're dropping a lot of weight all at once it's very common for you to start having symptoms like with your with gallstones. So, and it just ha I woke up one night and I was in excruciating pain right where my gallbladder was and it was shooting to the back and I ended up in emerge. So funny thing, uh, I was like four o'clock in the morning and they sent me for an ultrasound and they were like, Oh, uh, the radiologist won't review this till tomorrow, so uh, we'll call you with the results. And they never did. And then I had an, another uh, attack, so I figured, okay, it's fine. Like maybe it's just really bad indigestion. And then, like a week later, I had another attack where I actually passed the stone, which is the most horrendous thing you'll ever <laughs> go through. Um, but it can happen where. It it gets, it moves up into the ducts and then moves through your intestines and out your colon. And so I went to see my family doctor and I said, listen, I passed something. Here's my symptoms. Um, the, the ER doctor had mentioned, yeah, it could be gallstones. We'll have to do an, and that's why they sent me for the ultrasound. Um, but they never called me back. So I figured no news is good news. Um, and my family doctor was like, oh no, they sent me the report. You have, you're full of gallstones. We need to send you to a surgeon. I was about to call you. I was like, oh shit, I <laughs> would have been nice to know. Um, and so we, but to get in to see, a, I got in to see the surgeon actually, it was two months. It took about two months and, uh, we booked it with the surgery for January. So that's how. I, so for two months, I lived off of uh, oatmeal and baby food because really that's all I could eat without irritating the stones. Um, and that's how I landed in surgery um, in January for my gallbladder. And again, everybody in my family's had their gallbladder out. It's common for us at least, you know. So I was like, ah, it's no big deal. Like my cousin who was uh, same age as me had had his out the year before. He's like, you'll be fine. And it's laparoscopic. It'll be quick. It's just my, at that point, it was actually what we didn't realize was because I had this tumor that I didn't know, my immune system was low. And then you go into surgery and surgery just knocks you down anyways. So it was almost inevitable that I was going to pick up something. So, oh, so but you, pick, it, you picked up something post-surgery from the hospital and that made you even sicker. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought this is a lot of stress for my body. Maybe it's, you know, the surgery, the infection, the, you know, you don't, it's like you want, 
you don't always jump to the worst conclusion, right? Oh God, it's cancer. I need to go. We try to make meaning out of what's happening to us. Yeah, you try to find an answer that seems reasonable. And a lot of times it is reasonable, right? It's, you know, just you, you sleep funny, you have a sore back. It's not osteoporosis, right? Um, that's what reasonable people do. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, but January it stopped again. So by this time, by end of February, early March, I was like, I'm not messing around anymore. I went back to my family doctor. I said, it's happening again. She's like, okay, let's repeat the ultrasound and I want to send you for an MRI. So the ultrasound came back that it had grown. It had doubled in size and the MRI confirmed it. So she, I said to her, I said, listen, I'm not going back to that other gynecologist. And now I'm really concerned about my fertility. So uh, send me to somebody else. I don't want to go back to that woman. And she said, okay. She's like, the only problem is, is that, you know, um, because it's a new patient referral, it's just going to take some time. I said, well, whatever. Like, what are you going to do? It's how it is. And um, so she said, I went in to see the gynecologist number two in September of 2013. So uh, between March and September, I didn't get a period in May and, and June. And then in July, I started, I got a period, but it didn't end. It just, every day it started, it started off really light. And then I just kept bleeding every day every day and it was like I was hypercycling because I'd have one or two days where it'd be light and then it would start again and so and this continued and as with as July and August came about and then September it's, it was getting really heavy really heavy and it was every day every day and by the time I rolled into this gynecologist's office I was having pain shooting down my right leg I was bloated I was miserable I was anxious like it was like hyper PMS it was awful and it got to the point where like I had to change my pad every like 45 minutes and I would go to work and I commute and I'd have a backpack with an extra pair of pants an extra pair of underwear and like I called it my diaper bag because you know you'd have to load up on having you know supplies to make sure you could get through the day and it so it was like I was exhausted from the physical but the emotional symptoms of this and so I went in and she had the MRI results and the ultrasound results and and so she actually runs a fertility clinic she's a gynecologist and she sees gynecology patients but the focus of her clinic is fertility um, so um, you know in her so in in her office at that time she had an ultrasound um, technician and they would do ultrasounds in her office so um so when I got there the first appointment they did an ultrasound I so I met with the technician first and then I went in to see her and the ultrasound was reviewed by her so not like in every other setting a radiologist she reviewed the ultrasound and you know she was she was lovely like she was super attentive and she asked a lot of questions and we talked about my family history and we talked about my family history with cancer and my mother's history with all her gynecological issues. Her bedside manner was wonderful. She was super attentive and she listened and there wasn't, you know, she really tried to create um, 
an environment where, you know, what we, we weren't having that power dynamic so that we were sitting here and we were equals and she was concerned. Um, and, uh, you know, and we talked about, we talked to, you know, we so we talked about the results and she said, you know, it could be a cyst, it could be a fibroid. And she explained to me everything about fibroids and about cysts. And I was like, wow, like, okay, I really feel informed. And we talked about, you know, what the next treatment methods were. She was like, you know, we could try doing, um, there was a procedure where they go in through the vagina and they try, you know, with some sort of medication. She's like, I don't think that's going to work. She's like, honestly, with your symptoms, I think we need to just go in and remove it. She's like, we'll do this laparoscopically, which you'll cut down. She's like, if we can't, We'll, slip to a, we'll switch to a laparotomy, but we're gonna try and do this laparoscopically so it cuts down your healing time. She's like, and hopefully, you know, we'll just, we'll go from there. And I thought, oh my God, okay, yeah, it's just a funky cyst it's, or a funky fibroid. And this is good, right? We never, no discussion about running blood work to kind of rule out anything else. She was confident it was a fibroid or an cyst. I was like, okay. Um, so we actually booked OR time for January because I, and this was my fault because I couldn't take work time off. So I said, listen, can we, can we go in right at the beginning of January? That's better for me. And she's like, as long as you're okay with that, that's fine. And till from that time till the end of the year, it just got really, it just got worse. It got really, really bad. So by the time I rolled into the OR, I was just, I was so exhausted and I was ready for like, get this thing out. So January, 2014 is when I had, I went into surgery with her, the second gynecologist. And uh, what I found out after the fact, because I was out cold, is that the mass at that point had gotten so big, it was like the size of a grapefruit, that it had consumed the ovary. Um, so when they went in lap laparoscopically, um, she, they couldn't remove the cyst. Um, she wanted to try and not have to switch to a laparotomy, which is basically where it's like a C-section cut where they go to the top of your pelvis and, and they do like a little small cut and open you up rather than a laparoscopy, which is three, I think I had four incisions in my belly, small ones and they pump you full of gas, and then they go in with instruments. So, um, so what she did is she tried to shuck the mass well, uh, to try and save the ovary. But when that she did- She tried to shuck? Shuck it, yeah, that's her words. She tried to shuck it. Which, I don't know, what do you shuck, I guess? Like, I mean- Oysters. Oysters, yeah. Which is what she, she wanted to see if she could separate the tumor from or what she thought was just a cyst from the ovary to save the ovary, but um, it wasn't going to happen. I mean, at that point, a lot of other a lot of other doctors would have done different things. But she, when she couldn't shuck it, she decided to remove the whole ovary, and uh, which we had talked about. She's like, worst case scenario is we need to take the whole ovary. And I signed consents for that. And, uh, but she said, I don't think it's that bad. And I think we can do this. So I wasn't worried about it, but she ended up taking it out. But what she did was she had to, 
she didn't want to switch to a laparotomy. So she morselated the tumor with the ovary, bagged it, and then removed it. What's yeah. morselated mean? Morselated basically she chopped it up and she pulled it out. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which in oncology is like the worst thing you can do. Because basically what happens is you just like, it's just all the cells go into the, the abdomen. So, but we can, I'll get into that a little later. Um, so she closed me up and, you know, I woke up and she came in and she said, well, you know, we had to remove the ovary. She goes, but everything else looks fine. I had endometriosis and I had some other things that she cleaned up and she's like, but no, we were able to do it laparoscopically. So you'll be on your feet in three weeks. And she goes, and you'll be okay. And then we'll send it for pathology and then I'll see you in six weeks. And you know, her whole, like she was such an attentive doctor. She was, a, you know, and, and I remember in the OR when they were, uh, you know, you going in for surgery is one of the most intimidating things you'll ever do in your life because you're basically butt naked with a thin cotton gown covering your bits and bolts your ass out basically and I didn't you know they won't let you go with your glasses on so I was blind as a bat because I wear glasses and you go into this cold room and there's all these instruments and bright lights and people and it's a, just a, another day at work for them. But for you, it is like, you're going to cut me open. Like my insides, you know, are going to be revealed for all to see. And we all know that when you start breaking factory seals, things go awry. So it's, it's, it's crazy. And, you know, and um, I went into the, the nurse walked me into the OR and you sit on this cold steel table and they start, you know, they're like, they just go to work. So they're opening up your gown and putting on uh, heart pads and IV lines. And it's into, and nobody really talks to you other than doing their surgical checklist. You're really so objectified. You feel like an object, right? You feel it can be really traumatic for some people because you really just feel like a sack of meat. And, uh, and I remember... Um, they were strapping down my arms and they were starting my IVs and she held my hand. She held my hand while they did that. And I thought, Oh, you know what? I'm in good hands. This woman's going to take care of me because that small gesture just filled me with so much confidence that I have a friend here. This is not just another day at work. This woman's going to take care of me. Um, and I remember that and I was like, Oh, you know, it feels you, just feel good. You feel like, okay, I'm not just a second. So you feel safe. You feel safe. Exactly. You feel absolutely safe. And I did, I felt safe with her. Her bedside manner was wonderful. And, uh, you know, even coming in to the recovery room afterwards and having that conversation with me, um, a lot of surgeons won't do it. Um, you know, they'll go out and talk to your family or they get the nurse to do it. But so to me, I felt, I felt good coming out of this surgery. I felt like, okay, I'm going to be okay. Everything's okay, right? So, um, so yeah, I went home and I had a great recovery. I, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't catch any infections, and I was up and about in, you know, two weeks' time, and I felt really good. And um, so I was like, okay, this is good. I'm turning a corner. Yes, you're excited. And uh, I went to see her for my six-week follow-up. 
And at that point, we, I knew that the pathology reports um, would be back. And it's like, um, she had mentioned, she's like, you know, the pathology will tell us exactly what it is. You know, most likely it's a cyst. Uh, you know, there's a rare, rare chance that it could be something else. We never, we talked about my family history with cancer, but we never talked about my possibility of having cancer. Um, it was, we just didn't talk about it. So I knew this report was going to come and it was going to tell us what it was, but I, did, I had no idea what that meant. I didn't, and, and I certainly didn't think that it would be, it could be cancer. So I went in to see her and she gave me a summary of the, of the, she didn't give me the full pathologist's report. So they, what it is, is that, you know, they, they list off all the tissue samples that are sent in and what the finding is and some other scientific stuff that I have no idea what it means. And then usually at the end, there'll be comments from the pathologist and recommendations. So I never saw the pathologist's comments or his recommendations. What she gave me was just the summary of the tissue samples and what they were found to be. And she said, and we went in, I went in and she said, well, so pathology came back and it said it's granulosa cell tumor, but don't worry, it's benign. And I was like, oh, but, oh, okay. She's like, oh yeah, no, no, it's benign. So you're fine, don't worry about it. And I said, oh, okay. I said, well, and I, you know, she was so adamant that, it, oh, it's benign. Well, we're going to keep an eye on you. So I want you to come back every six months and we'll do an ultrasound in my office. And I was like, oh, okay. But I trusted her. I felt safe with this woman. I said, she knows her stuff. We had an hour and a half discussion about fertility options down the road because now I had lost an ovary. And, you know, what my, you know, we talked about shouldn't impact, you know, your, you know, your periods or anything like that. You know, you shouldn't feel any other change other than, yeah, you know, you're, it's going to be a little more difficult to get pregnant, but here's all the options that we can do for you. That we talked about at nauseam, but that was the extent of, okay, it was granulose cell tumor. It's benign. You're fine. We'll just keep an eye on you. And I was like, okay, this is great. Benign. You know, you trust your doctor. If it wasn't benign, if there was something suspicious, you know, there's a procedure, they'd send me to see an oncologist, you know, but she said it's benign. And, you know, hindsight's always 2020. I trusted her and I walked out of there and I felt like, okay, everything's back to normal. I'm gonna get busy living. And I'm not going to worry about it. So, um, and you know, at that point, I was four years out from my celiac diagnosis. I had finally, we finally fixed this issue. So my, my stomach was feeling good. I was feeling good. My periods were normal again. I felt for the first time in a long time, if not ever, like a normal human being. And that can be really intoxicating when you've struggled with illness. I, you know, I had, you know, my anxiety was under control. I had done outpatient treatment in cognitive behavioral therapy. I was on medication. I felt like a normal human being. And I was, you know, and I was like, I'm just going to live it up. 
and not worry about it. And so in 2014, I went back to see her in June and then again in the following October. And we did ultrasounds in her office, which were reviewed by her and everything was fine. So in October, she said, come back. She's like, you know what, you're fine. Come back next June, which at that point would have been eight months later. She's like, you know, we'll be, you know, I think you're fine. I don't think we need to, you need to come back every six months. I was like, okay, fine. You know, you're my doctor. You're fine. Um, and then, so that was the end of, that was October, November, 2014. So 2015, it was like February, March. I started noticing little things like getting heartburn at night and I never have heartburn. Uh, bloating, like by the end of the day, I was bloated, but um, I, you know, I just chopped it up to stress, right? Women bloat, uh, heartburn, I was like, maybe I'm not, like maybe it's something I'm eating, maybe I'm getting some cross-contamination somewhere with my celiac disease, so um, I just kind of dismissed it, because, and also I was still getting a period. And that was the big indicator the year before. And I was still getting a period and I was still getting, you know, the, all the fun stuff that comes with that. So I thought, well, it's not, it's nothing, right? You dismiss it. Um, I worked a high stress job. I was like, again, I was like, nah, it's fine. But in March, I was, uh, in March, I was, uh, it was one of those days that I had the list of like life stuff to do. So I had to like schedule an oil change and book my doctor appointment with the family doctor for my pap or something. And, you know, and I had, we were, I was going away with my sister to Cuba. So I was like getting uh, my travel insurance together. So I was checking off the list and something, and it came into my head. I said, you know, I'm due back to see the doctor, the gynecologist in June. Let me just call now and book the appointment and then that way it's done. I don't have to worry about it. So I called her office and I spoke to her receptionist and she was like, you know what? She's really busy in June. Why don't you come in the beginning of May? And I was like, yeah, that's fine. Whatever, it doesn't matter to me. She's like, great, so we booked it. And so, uh, and that's it, I didn't think about it. And you know, the symptoms kind of continued but they weren't getting any worse. So yeah, so Mar, you know, so um, again, I was just, I didn't think, I just missed the symptoms. So I went away to Cuba. We like came back the 13th of May, and I had my appointment with my gynecologist on the 14th, 14th or 15th, but it was like literally the day after we landed, and I walked in, you know, didn't think anything was it. Was well rested. Had a beautiful holiday with my sister and went and she did again uh, ultrasound in her office a pelvic and transvaginal ultrasound and but this time she came in and she says okay there's something where your right ovary used to be and it's big and we need to get it out but I want to send you for an MRI first I said okay so she's like you know same as last time we'll go in laparoscopically we'll remove it uh, let's book you in for July and to get into the OR. So she booked me into mid-July, which was two months away. And uh, she's like, uh, okay, so I'm going to, she sent me off for my MRI. And I went to 
the, it was at a hospital. I went in for my MRI and uh, it was an odd day. It was one of those weird days where I was, they, they were renovating the hospital. So they had a mobile MRI unit, which was out in the parking lot. So you, they put you in this gown because it was a pelvic MRI. So, you know, you're butt naked under a gown and I'm waiting um, in a chair by the door to go out to the parking lot to this mobile MRI machine. Healthcare in Canada, folks. Yes, yeah. And, and uh, it was really awkward because it was right across from their emergency room and there was like 20 or 30 police officers just standing around because one of, one of the, a police officer had been injured in some sort of altercation and he had been brought in to the emergency room. So I'm there in my gown with all these cops standing around. Like, and I'm nervous because I'm like, what is this MRI going to say? And it was, so it was an awkward day. And I went in and did my MRI. And uh, the technician, when I came out of the machine, the technicians wouldn't look me in the eye, which to me was really telling. And, um, and uh, one of the technicians just kind of said, okay, you're done. You can go and change and have a good weekend. And I made a joke because that's what I do. And I said, well, it all depends on what you tell me, isn't it? And, and she looked at me, she finally looked at me and she says, oh, you're perfectly healthy. But it was like, there was no emotion in her eyes. She was, there was sadness in her eyes. I could tell she was lying. So I was like, that was like, that kind of started the whole process off. So, so they actually- How did you feel when you recognized that she was lying? I knew she was lying. I, in my head, that voice in my head just said, she's lying. There's something wrong. And I, I knew, I knew. Yeah. And um, I had seen my gynecologist, it was like May 14th. They got me into the MRI two weeks later on the 28th, mm -hmm. which is pretty unheard of, unless there's something seriously wrong. Mm -hmm. And then um, May, not May 28th was a Thursday. And she called me in the following Monday and she said, can you come in today? And, uh, and at the time I was dating someone and he had gone in for a small procedure to have his adenoids removed or something. And so I drove all the way from one hospital to her clinic and uh, she ushered me in right away. And she says, okay, there's, there's a lot of stuff there. So I don't, we still need to operate. We're gonna go in in July. But I'm going to send you to the cancer center for a pre-op consult. I said, cancer? Why? She's like, what? No, no. It's, you know, your tumor was benign, but I just want their opinion. And I looked at her. I'm like, do I have cancer? She's like, no, no, don't worry. Everything's going to be fine. Like there was this dismissal, which is actually common. A lot of times cancer patients don't know they have cancer until they get to the oncologist because GPs or other doctors, they just don't know how to say the news, but she was pretty dismissive. So uh, that was uh, that was June 1st. So what sort of emotions are you going through from back when she first came back and said, hey, you've got something in your abdomen and I'm going to send you for an MRI? Honestly, I was just so confused. And, you know, I was just, I didn't know what was going on, but I was you know, she had taken such good care of me. And at that point, I still trusted her. I was like, if she's not, con if she's not overly worried, then maybe I don't need to be. 
but I, you know, I, on the way home from that appointment, I cried in the car because I'm like, God, I have to do surgery again. I don't know what they're going to find in there. You know, um, I don't know what's going to happen. So I was just, it was anxious. It was anxiety. But again, you know, I was like, well, but it was benign. So maybe it's just another benign tumor. And, you know, I didn't think it would be as bad as it was. So, um, and I kind of just distracted myself and I was like, okay, well, I'm going in two months. We're going to take it out. Let me go to work, put my sick leave request in, do all that stuff. Um, and I didn't really think about it because she kind of talked about the pre-op consult at the cancer center as uh, like really kind of laissez-faire. Like it wasn't a big deal. She just wants their opinion. So I was like, okay, well, this is fine. I've gone for pre, you know, for consults with other doctors and, you know, that's not a big deal. But that, so that was Monday and I was, uh, so that Friday, which would have been, I knew it was June 5th because some dates you just never forget. So my dates might be off, but it was a June 5th and it was Friday. And I was at my office and I worked downtown um, at university in Dundas. And it was about 9.30 in the morning. And I got a call from the cancer center. And they said, you have to be here this afternoon at 1.30. I said, well, listen, I'm downtown. And I commute in. I was like, my car's sitting at a go station. There's no rush hour traffic. I'm like, this is really late notice. They're like, the doctor wants you here today. You need to be here today. If you can't make 1.30, we'll squeeze you in. But you need to be here today. And I was like... And then I was like, oh man, something's wrong. Something's really wrong. And you know, the universe has a way of colluding to make sure when you need to be somewhere, you will be there. So I was like, okay, I will be there. And then they were like, oh, and by the way, you need to go to the other hospital and get a copy of your MRI results first and then be here. And I was like, are you kidding me? All right, let's see what happens. So I- You're a trooper. Oh. And I ran into my boss's office. I said, cancer center wants me there this afternoon. I got to go. She's like, just go. And it just worked out well that my mom was home with a flu. So I called her and I said, I'm going to get on the subway and I'm going to go out to Kipling station. Can you pick me up? And can I borrow your car so I can go to this appointment? And she's like, yeah, sure. Yeah. I said, I know you're sick and I'm really sorry. She's like, I can make it to Kipling. I said, okay. So I got on that subway, got out to Kipling, and thank God that was like the one day in the last 20 years that the TTC had no delays. So <laughs> it was like, because I, I was worried. Um, and I got out, so I got in her car, and uh, she's like, do you want me to go with you? And I said, but you have the flu. Like, do you really want to go into a hospital where there's sick people? She's like, no. I said, and then at that point, I don't know why, but I was like, I don't think it's a big deal. She said it was just a pre-op consult. So, you know, I'll just, I'll go by myself. She's like, okay. So I dropped my mom off, went all the way to the other side of the city to this hospital to get my MRI results. And they were awesome. Cause I walked in and I said, listen, they want me there. I thought, I think I made it there by like 11 30, 12 o'clock. I said, I have an hour and a half to go all the way back to the other side of the city to get to this appointment, can, can you do this quickly? And they're like, absolutely. And they fired it off in no time. Back in my mom's car, go to the hospital. 
if you've ever tried to park at any hospital in the middle of the day, it's like navigating the nine gates of hell. It's just awful. So trying to find a parking lot, a parking spot, trying to navigate through the hospital to find this cancer center, which is like tucked in, you know, at the back on the ground floor. And so, um, and I was, so by the time I rolled in there and I registered and they gave me all these forms to fill out, I was flustered. I was pissed. And I was, you know, and that kind of put a cap on the anxiety for a minute. But, you know, uh, the, I remember the way the, the admin who was there, the way she handed the forms and the look in her eyes, I was like, this isn't right. This isn't right. And, you know, in hospital, when you go to these, like, especially a cancer center, I can't speak to other clinics, but there's already a real, like, heavy energy when you walk in. Like, people are sick and they're fighting. And they're, so it's, it can be a bit depressing. And I remember I was wearing one of my favorite sundresses that day because it was a warm day. And, um, and it, I just felt weird because I was all, I had come from the office. So I was wearing this nice dress and my cardigan and, and I was all done up with my makeup and my hair. And I'm sitting in this waiting room and I'm about 20, 20, 25 years younger than most people in that room. So they're looking at me like, are you waiting for your mom? And, and I was, you know, everybody else is bald and, and, you know, puffy because they're in chemo and I'm there with hair. And so I felt really out of place in that waiting room and I it just didn't click what was going to happen. So they took me in and the nurse, you know, did my vitals and they take your weight and everything. And she said, okay, you're going to see the gynecologic oncologist and he's just, you know, he'll be here in a second. And they took my MRI results. And then he walked in, he sat down, he looked at me and he's like, okay, so it looks like you've had a recurrence of the cancer that you had last year. And that was the first time that anybody had said to me, you have cancer. And I, for a moment, like, it was like, it's like you, when, you know, uh, and some, you know, something loud goes off near your ear and all of a sudden you just lost all your senses in a way and you're, you know, you're dizzy and you're disoriented and it, the wind's been knocked out of you. And so, and like all I could hear was, okay, I have cancer, I have cancer. And I, I remember I looked at him and I was, my mouth was open and I couldn't, all I could say was, I have cancer. And he looked at me, he's like, yes, yes, you have cancer. You've had cancer. You had cancer before. And I said, no one told me this. I said, she never told me this. She said it was benign. And he got really frustrated. He's like, no, it's not benign. It's cancer. It's cancer. You have cancer. I said, well, how bad is it? And he was like, well, the MRI shows that it's all over your uterus and your, your, ov your left ovary and, and there. He's like, but, you know, uh, we need to do a CT scan. We need to do a biopsy. We're going to have to do surgery. And, you know, we're, you're going to have to have a hysterectomy. And then, you know, you're going to have to have chemotherapy. And that, at that point, my brain was like, I've had enough. It's too much. Um, you know, because all I'm thinking right now is I have cancer. I'm going to die. That's it. So he's like, okay, I need you to do blood work. I need you a urine sample. 
and he's like, I need to do a, an exam. And so they sent me to the washroom to do this urine sample. And I just sat there for 10 minutes and I bawled my eyes out. And I was like, the one day I really needed my mom here. I couldn't, but I really didn't think it was going to be like this. And so, and the, so the rest of that appointment was I had an exam and I did my blood work and uh, I left with an appointment for a CT scan, a biopsy, and then come back to see him on the 19th. So like within, I had my biopsy, no, I had the CT scan a couple of days later. I had the biopsy a couple of days after that. And I was back in his clinic within two weeks. And that's, and so that was June 19th. And he's, he came in and at that point I had my mom and my boyfriend at the time with me. And he came in and he's like, okay, it's, it's bad. It's everywhere. It's on your, it's on your uterus. It's on your tubes. It's on your left ovary. There's deposits on your colon. There's deposits on your bowel. It's in your peritoneum and your momentum. He's like, we need to go in. We need to do, we need to take out everything. So it was a complete hysterectomy. He's like, so we're that, including my cervix, because usually they'll take out your ovaries, leave your uterus, or they'll take out your uterus and your ovaries, but leave your cervix. But he was like, it all has to go. We need to remove your appendix because it's one of the tumors is leaning against it. So we're not going to take a chance. We're going to take it out. He's like, so it's going to be a rough surgery. And then after that, we're going to do, you're going to have to do juvent chemotherapy. And I was like, okay, I'm ready. Let's go. At that point, I was like, are you ready this afternoon? Because I will, you know, you're just, you've told me that there's cancer everywhere. I want it out. I want it out now. And uh, we had a discussion about fertility. He's like, if you want, we can send you to a fertility doctor. And we can see if we can, you can freeze eggs. Um, you know, and that's something, and he's like, I think at least you should go and speak to them. And at that point, I was like, I actually got offended and I got mad. And I said, no, I don't, I don't need to go see a doctor. I'm, you know, I, uh, you know, he, we had talked about the chance of a hysterectomy at the first appointment. And I, you know, I had time to kind of process that. And the bottom line was, is if it came down to a choice between me living and, de or, and delaying surgery to, to harvest eggs, which I don't even know if I'd ever be able to use. Well, the reality was they were gonna take out my uterus. So, you know, that would have mean surrogacy if, um, if, if I did live um, down the road. And that was like, that's a huge, like people don't realize that's very expensive in Canada and very difficult. And I, you know, and I had approached the topic of adoption and I was like, I'm okay with adoption. You know, I'm not, you know, the, the experience of being pregnant and, uh, you know, that wasn't of interest to me and never had been. I was more interested in the experience of being a mother and being a mother can be many different things. So uh, I was like, you know what? And, but also if I didn't have kids, that was okay too. So I was like, oh, I'm not delaying my surgery. I'm not delaying my surgery. Like, like, no, we need to go. We need to do this. He was like really adamant. He's like, you need to go see the fertility doctor. You need to do this. 
And I was like, who the fuck are you going to tell me? And I, I, I was like, okay, fine. Um, and I did. Actually, he got me in the next day. And I went to see the doctor and they looked at my scans and they did an ultrasound in their office at their clinic because this was a big a fertility clinic associated with the hospital. And uh, they came back a day or two later and they said, there's nothing we can do. There's so much disease around the ovary that we can't, we can give you the drugs to help stimulate it, but we can't drop, we can't pull them out. And I said, okay, all right. And uh, so I went back, so I went back to see my oncologist and we booked the surgery for a week later. So June 30th is I went in and uh, we had a fall. They were able, they did the hysterectomy. They were able to resect the disease off my bowel and my colon without having to remove it. Cause that was something else we talked about. He said, if we can't remove it safely, we will resect it and you'll wake up with a bag, a coloscopy, colonoscopy bag. Um, and I was like, okay, that's fine. Um, so uh, the first thing I did when I woke up is I looked for the bag and there was no bag. So I was like, oh, yes. So, but they took out my appendix. They removed all the deposits in my omentum and my peritoneum. Your omentum is kind of like a sound barrier. It's like a thin layer of tissue that covers your abdomen. And uh, so because granulosa cell tumor, like it's, it's a tissue-based cancer, so it'll just kind of float around your abdomen and stick to tissue. So most of the deposits were on the omentum and then some of them on the peritoneum, which is just out, um, outside of that. So, um, and so the surgery was a success and it, you know, um, it wasn't pleasant. Like <laughs> it was a big scar down the middle of my belly, but uh, the surgery went well. And, uh, and so um, they gave me about two months to recover before we started chemotherapy. So, um, and so the first chemotherapy, so I started chemotherapy, it was August 28th, 2015. And because I was stage 3C, which is fairly advanced, uh, they decided they wanted to do something really, really tough and really toxic, um, but very aggressive. And I did, it's called BEP, and it's three, it's a combination of three drugs. It's bleomycin, etoposide, and cisplatin, which is a platinum drug. And platinum drugs are really hard, and they're very toxic, and they're usually reserved for advanced stage cancers. And they it really, it's hard on your body. So, um, and you you do the, the, the way the cycle broke down is it was the first week I did five days of treatment. And then I had one day of treatment the following two weeks. And then they check your white blood cells. And if your white blood cells were fine, because it suppresses your immune system. So there's the risk with when you're doing chemo is your white blood cells will drop and then you you develop an infection, which can be really dangerous. Um, and then, you, so they check your cells. If you're good, you start again. And he wanted to do a minimum of three cycles of that. And, um, and you know, I had no idea. I'd never done chemotherapy. I figured this is going to be hell. This is going to be tough. But you just, you don't know. 
they're not prepared. So, and I was still, I had had an infection in my incision, so they had to open a section of the incision. So I was still had a bit of an open wound and we were still, I had a, you know, um, a wound care nurse coming every day to change my dressings. And um, so I was still feeling weak and I was thinking, I don't know if I'm strong enough to do this, but the doctors insisted. They're like, no, no, we can't wait. We can't wait. We got we to gotta start. Wow. So you're really like between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. If you're not really feeling well enough and strong enough to be taking on this whole very hard chemotherapy. Yeah. And yet you can't be, can't be waiting any longer. No. So I was like, okay, let's just, you go in and you're like, let's do this. And so I started and the first round wiped out my white blood cells completely. So I was like, you know, normal range is between four and eight. And I think I was 0.25 or something. I mean after that first few weeks, that round? After that first cycle. So that first three week cycle mm. with the five days and then the two days following and the two weeks following, it just wiped myself, my, my, white, my neutrophils is the medical term um and so i developed a fever and i landed in the hospital with an infection and i was in the hospital for five days on and there i was uh on a constant drip of antibiotics i think i was on three different antibiotics and i you know and you just feel like death <laughs> you feel like death and at that point i was like oh my god they're they're killing me to try and cure me and that's when it really dawned on me that like this is like a bag of poison and i, I and i was so distraught because i thought this is so inhumane like treatment is supposed to relieve your symptoms treatment is supposed to make you feel better but in the cancer world chemotherapy knocks you down it's literally it's killing all the cells in your body trying to kill those bad rogue cells that have multiplied and but you know everyone's a casualty it's like friendly fire or something and and that's when it really dawned on me like oh my god they're like it's gonna get worse it's gonna get real bad before it gets better and after they discharged me and my my counts came up and they said, okay, you know, you're good to start round two. I remember that morning, I was living with my mom at the time and my mom would take me to chemo and I got up and I sat on the edge of the bed and my mom came in and she's like, okay, it's time to go. And I looked and said, I'm not going. And she looked at me and she, my mom's European and they rule with an iron fist and I could see the tears in her eyes. And she's like, Kelly, you have to go. And I looked at her and I was like, oh, I can't do this to her. But I, 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 it was like, I was scared. And I was scared and I really didn't want to go. But I went for my mother and, uh, and, I, and I, went, I kept going. <laughs> she made me go every day. And it was, it was probably the worst three months of my life. Like you just feel like you're dying. And that was the first time in those four years that I had had these symptoms and had this struggle with this unnamed disease that I really felt like I was dying.
was when I was in chemo. And it's it very frightening. And it, yeah, and I just, and it's very hard to wrap your mind around how something that makes you feel like you're dying is actually going to help you. Oh it's, yeah, that cognitive dissonance. How can I be feeling so much worse yeah. and try to expect to feel yeah. better? Because yeah, by the time I finished my three rounds, I had lymphedema, my legs were swollen, my face was swollen. Um, you know, I had neuropathy in my hands and my feet. Um, so I'd lose at night, I would lose feeling in my arms completely, uh, muscle pain. My heart was like, it's like, it's beating in your head, like boom, 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 boom. Going up the stairs, I'd have to take a break halfway up. Um, I slept all the time. I lost all my hair. I, I got tinnitus in my ear. I got pixelated vision. So one day I just, I was sitting, I remember I was sitting at the kitchen table eating my oatmeal because that's all I could keep down because the nausea is so intense. And I, I looked up and all of a sudden I'm like, oh my God, am I in uh, that game that, that the kids love so much? Because everything was pixelated. And I was like, oh mom, mom, this isn't good. And uh, she's like, what's wrong? And I said, it's I, like everything's pixelated. And then after a couple of minutes it passed, but that would happen, it started happening regularly. And they did adjust my dose because they were concerned, especially because I had vertigo and the tinnitus. They were like, we don't want to blow your ears. Because you can. Yeah. I was like, yeah, yeah, I would like my hearing after all this. Um, and not to have the room spin. Um, so, but it was rough. It was so bad. And, you know, and on top of that, you know, having this open wound, it was just, it was hell. It was absolute hell, but I made it through, thank God. And then we ha I did a CT scan and uh, November 2nd, I, 2015, I went to see my oncologist and he said, congratulations, your scans are clear. There's no evidence of disease. And I awesome. said, thank God. Um, but at that point, also when I was going through chemo was uh, when I started to like ask, how the hell did I get here? how did she miss this? Like, what the hell happened? And um, so I, I called her office, my gynecologist, um, the one who told me it was benign. And I asked for copies of all my records. And, uh, and I remember, so they said, okay, fine, but you know, it's $30. And I was like, fine, I'll pay $30. And I went and I picked them up and they left it at the reception desk and the receptionist pretended like she didn't know me, which I thought was so weird. And I'm like, cause I, I, you know, we used to, I'm a very super friendly person and I would come in and say, hello, how are you? And I knew that her dad was sick and you know, and I, so when I went in to pick up the records and said, good morning. And I asked about her dad and she looked at me like, what, who are you? And I was like, okay. So I took my records and I left. And I, I also requested all my records from the hospital. And I dated back to January 2014 when I had the surgery. Now, I had this surgery at a different hospital. But what I had come to learn by then is that when it's oncology, they have to get a second pathology done at the cancer center. So I wanted the records from the hospital to make sure that that was done. 
So, and what I learned, and I made the mistake of bringing them all to me, bringing all these records with me to chemo, because I was there for five, six hours at a time. I figured I'm going to sit in the chair and read this, which wasn't a good idea. Because when I started, I read through the records in my, from the gynecologist's office. And that's when I discovered that there was a, I read there, the pathologist's report was included in the records. And what the pathologist had said was, it's of low malignant potential, which is very common with granulosa cell tumor, but it's still classified as a malignant cancer. So he said it's low malignant potential, but patients should be referred to oncology for staging and assessment. And I was like, um, I have never seen this, and that's not what she told me. So there was nothing in that pathologist report that said it was benign. She had, she had interpreted as benign, perhaps, I don't know what she was thinking, but there was nothing in that pathologist's report from the pathologist that said it was benign. In fact, he said she needs to go to the cancer center right now and get staged and assessed. So that, that report was January, 2014? Yeah. Okay. And, wow. then, and so, and I noticed that in her, in the package I got from her office, there was her consult, her chart notes from the first time I walked into her office up until the surgery. And then that from after the surgery, so January, 2014, to when I came back in um, May of 2015, the notes were included. Get out. No, I'm serious. So I was like, what? And I called their office and they said, we gave you everything. And I was like, I'm not going to get anything out of these people. So I'm not going to bother. And then when I got my records back from the hospital, they had no records prior to my referral in from in June 2015. So there was no second pathology. There was, uh, they actually ordered a second pathology uh, when I came in June 2015, because he even said, he goes, I don't see a second, path I don't see a pathology report on our system. So we're going to request the slides from the other hospital and we're going to redo it to confirm because that never happened. So, um, yeah, so I was mad. I was livid. I was like, this is not right. You know, um, and at that point, I was so sick from chemo that I was like, you know, I, I kind of put it aside and I thought I need to get straight in my head before I can deal with this. And because with when I came out of chemo too, they told me, they're like, it's going to take months for you to recover from chemotherapy. And I said, okay. And I, you know, I had a lot of muscle atrophy and a lot of muscle pain and I needed to detox. So I just focused on recovering. And also when you have cancer, when you're in the system, you know, there's all kinds of resources and they're there and they're like, you can do this. You know, your nurses, your doctors, they're cheering you on and there's all these people around you. You know, you're in your chemo chair and you have your chemo buddies that you chat with and you, and you, you know, and so there's like this camaraderie and you have a purpose. Your purpose is to get through this, to get well. And then they tell you, okay, great. You're done chemo and you're NED. Uh, so see you later. We'll see you in six months. What was that acronym? Uh, NED, no evidence of disease. 
Okay. So they don't like using remission for whatever reason, uh, especially where with like ovarian cancer is, uh, you know, it tends to recur. So they say no evidence of disease. So um, they don't want to give you false hope that it'll never come back. So yeah, and then so they send you on your way and that's when you're like, oh my God. And then you finally, like the weight of the diagnosis and the weight of what you just went through. That's when, that's when it all comes up and that's when you really start to grieve, you know, because you've lost your health. The person that you were when you walked in, the, per the woman I was when I walked into that clinic room, she died that day. She's gone and she's never coming back. You know, and I always contend that cancer brought many blessings and many gifts, more so for me than, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's difficult and there's a lot of bad stuff that came with it. But, um, you know, it was, a, it was a real eye opener. You know, you gain a perspective that when you have to address your mortality, that it's not, you know, that unless you're in that position, it's kind of hard to get to, you know, to have that perspective. So, um, so yeah, so after chemo, there was all this grief and all this healing that had to happen. And there is, and we want so desperately to get back to some semblance of normal too. Um, so that was my focus. And then, you know, and I had six months where I just focused on getting, recovering and getting better. And then, um, you know, then going back to work because I was off work at this time. And unfortunately, then in March 2016, uh, I had my follow-up CT scan and they found more disease. So that, and at that point, it was just on my omentum and my peritoneum. And so, so what, what was it like to get that news? You know what? It's funny because when I walked out of the hospital after in November, when they, they said, okay, congrats, you're NED, there was something in my gut that said, mm, this isn't done. This isn't done. And, you know, I kind of, I'm like, you're nuts. Like, come on, you're just being paranoid and you're being, because, you know, fear of recurrence is huge with cancer patients. Some people come out with PTSD. It's not uncommon for a lot of patients to need a lot of a mental health support or they end up on medication to help with their anxiety. Like it's, you know, it's, it's a real fear. So I thought, okay, maybe this is, and I talked about it with the counselors at the center and with my own therapist and they're like, this is normal, but it's still something in my stomach that said, mm, you're not done. You're not done. And, um, come March when they told me, I was like, shit, okay. And that's when I started to mobilize. That's when I was like, okay, I need to learn everything about this disease. I need to connect with people. I need to, because at that point I was, I had isolated myself because I was just hurting physically, emotionally. I didn't want to deal with it. I just needed time. And then that diagnosis lit the fire. And I was like, I need to read every article on PubMed about granulosa cell tumor. I connected uh, with a support group online uh, for patients with granulosa cell tumor, and it's a fantastic group. And we share information. So, you know, there's, we have a whole library of literature. Uh, I went to a conference on granulosa cell tumor. Um, and so, cause, uh, you know, I wanted to know what my options were. 
And, uh, you know, I had met a lot of women who had lived with the disease for like 15, 20 years. And that was really inspiring because I was like, okay, even if we can't get rid of it, because what I learned in that process was that um, chemotherapy is, is like a 50-50 for a granulosa cell tumor. And actually, they're trying to phase out the use of BEP, which is what I had, because they find it's only really effective if you're diagnosed in early stages, like stage one or stage two. So maybe if I had had it in 2014 when I was stage one, it would have been effective to prevent a recurrence, but at stage 3C, it just, it wasn't gonna do anything. Um, and there's better drugs that were coming online that was showing good data. And, but I also learned that there was this whole world of hormone therapy that people were using and having great results with maintaining stability or reducing the burden of disease. So like, I was just like, and you know, I was just a sponge. I want, I was talking to different people. I was, you know, researching as much as I could. And, uh, so that when once I was diagnosed, the conversation I had with my medical oncologist, because they had transferred me to a medical oncologist, because a, gyne a gynecologic oncologist is, is primarily a surgeon. And sometimes they'll oversee your chemotherapy care, but for the most part, they shift it over to a medical oncologist, which is a doctor who's a trained oncologist, but they're an internal medicine doctor primarily. So, and I said to him, I said, listen, I'm not doing chemotherapy again. Like, I barely made it through BEP. I said, let's try hormone therapy and see how we do with that. So we'll, cause they want, at that point they were like, well, we can try uh, carboplatin and paclitaxel, which is another chemotherapy drug. And I was like, whoa, like, come on, give me some time. Like I just got feeling back in my feet, right? Like <laughs> have a little bit of time. And, and I, and I, you know, and the beauty was I had a fantastic medical oncologist who, who was so open and so, and there was no ego because a lot of the times, I mean, you know, this too, going through the system, I, in my opinion, there's three types of doctors. There's the ones who are truly are healers. They really do want to heal people and that they, they're the ones who, you know, they're, they have the empathy and they have the compassion and they listen and it's about you, the patient. Then there's the science geeks, which are most like surgeons are science geeks. Like they want to deal with you from like your neck to your abdomen. That's what they want to deal with, everything else. But you know, a lot of them are, they, they want to heal you. It's like, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a competition. Like I'm going to, they're going in for the fight and that was fine. And, uh, and then there's the ones that are all ego they just love being a doctor, it's the prestige. And they're the ones, you know, that don't listen to pathologist reports and don't and misdiagnose you, which is, diff which is not right. But, so I had a great medical oncologist who was a healer and he was so open to like, yeah, let's try something different, let's do this. So we did try, um, we, uh, we did try a hormone therapy drug called letrozole, which is a aromastase inhibitor. Um, I don't, the science behind it, I don't know, because I'm not a scientist, but whatever. <laughs> so, and it was a good drug, like it was really tolerable. And we did a couple months of that. So how is that drug different than a chemo drug? 
chemo is a synthetic. Is this other one more natural? No, they're all synthetic drugs. Chemotherapy goes in and kills your like all the cells. Okay. Like, so it's you know now they're getting better with it that they can target specific cells you know based on their biology, but it goes in and it kills the cells. So it's they call it cytotoxic. And the problem with chemotherapy is that it kills the bad cells and it kills the good cells. And, you know, the cells in your mouth and in your scalp uh, regenerate faster, which is so the drugs tend to target those first, which is why you lose your hair. And, you know, and it kills, you know, and that's why you get muscle atrophy because it's killing the cells in your muscles. But it targets those, its intention is to target those rogue cells and kill them. And then the body regenerates. Um, you know, the problem is, is that some tumors don't respond. Some tumors, you know, they adapt and they know how to block the drugs. And so chemo is not always effective. So a hormone therapy, so ovarian cancer is, they now know, uh, is driven by hormones like breast cancer. So it feeds off of estrogen or progesterone. And so what hormone therapy does, it suppresses those hormones so that the cancer can't feed. And sometimes it'll just keep you stable, which is great, so that your tumors don't shrink, but they don't grow. And you can live a very long time with disease in your body that won't grow. As long as, and, you know, there's other risks you have. They Sometimes they stick to things and that can cause problems. So you can stick to your bowel and then you have bowel obstruction. So it's not without risk, but, and in some cases the tumors can't feed on estrogen or progesterone and they just die. So, and then you have, you know, you're able to shrink the disease. So hormone therapy is far more tolerable. So a lot of people can go on and live a normal life, go to work, raise their kids. They have, it's, there is side effects depending on what drug you go on. But uh, a lot of people can tolerate it and, and still live normally. Um, whereas chemotherapy, you know, it, you're immune suppressed, you're sick, you know, you're in bed all day, you can't eat. It's, it's a very different, it's a very aggressive and invasive type of treatment. So, oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so we did. Um, so I tried the letrozole, and, and, and at that point also, they had sent me to another cancer center for a second opinion. Um, and so we were waiting to see if this letrozole was working. And unfortunately, it just, it wasn't the right drug. So, and then, and the disease, and I think too, I was really stressed out, like, I was trying to find a place to live. I was trying to get my life back together. I was exhausted. And, you know, I think those all play into, fact, play into when you're sick. Um, you know, if you're tired, it just takes everything to the next level, right? When you're not resting, it, it just exacerbates everything. So the disease continued to progress. And then we had found new disease on my liver. Um, and so, at that point, they were like, listen, we don't want to take the risk. Let's go into chemo and try a different drug. This one's not as bad as BEP. It was carboplatin and pactitaxol. They're like, it's really tolerable. 
And they, you know, my, the doctors at both hospitals agreed. And I said, okay, fine. I was at that point. I, I was like, okay, let's, I, my gut still said hormone therapy, but you know, we had given it a year and it wasn't working. And I didn't want to get to the point where we couldn't operate if we needed to, or we had other complications. So I agreed. And March, 2017, I started again on chemotherapy. And uh, again, carboplatin is a platinum drug like cisplatin, but it's, it's not as toxic as cisplatin. I mean, they're both cytotoxic, but far more tolerable. Um, so I, I wasn't as sick. It was actually a very different experience because I was able to, like you're exhausted all the time and you're nauseous all the time, but um, you know, um, with, with the drugs and I had at that point um, with that, I, I was, um, sorry, after my last chemotherapy, because they give you a lot of uh, steroids to help with the nausea and energy. Um, and with steroids, you got to be careful because they can raise your blood sugars. So when I came out of the last chemotherapy, I was actually pre-diabetic. And they said, don't worry about it. You're sh the further out from chemo you go, your sugars will normalize. And I said, okay. They're like, it's just a steroid. The steroid's got to come out of your body. Um, so um, this time around, I was like, I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want to create complications. So I only did the steroids at the hospital. So I, I said, okay, we can do the steroids with the infusion. So they'd hang a bag of dexamethasone with your bag of poison and everything flowed together. It was fun. But, and then they send you home with it, but I never took it. And instead I was taking the CBD oil and I found that was a lot better. Mm. And then of course, so that way when I finished, I did six rounds. When I finished, I wasn't pre-diabetic. Like my sugars were normal, which was good because diabetes runs in my family. So I'm like, I don't need that. But so yeah. Is, is CBD an option at the clinic that you're at? No. That's something you did independently. I did independently with my naturopath. Because mm. while, um, while I did the second chemo, um, I was doing uh, complementary therapies. So I did uh, high-dose vitamin C drips. Um, I did mistletoe injections. Um, you know, I um, eliminated a lot of foods from my diet and a lot of antioxidants and different vitamin compensations. And... It worked. Like I went through, I had a really good experience through chemo. Um, fortunately, it didn't work. <laughs> it kind of, everything kind of stopped growing for a little bit. And then, uh, and then it started to grow really slowly. And then by the time I finished chemo, it just started to grow exponentially. So um, that was disappointing because it's like, I did all this for nothing, right? And I, during this time, too, I had consulted with a lawyer regarding my gynecologist. And it was really upsetting because he was like, listen, we went through all my notes. We went through all my records. And he's like, I think you have a case. But here's the reality. He was actually quite lovely. He's like, in Canada, doctors are protected by the Canadian Medical Professionals Association. He's like, which you got which is paid for by the ministry, which is funded by your tax dollars. So you are paying the premium to protect the doctor. He's like, 
minimum, it'll be four to five years before we go to trial, and they always take these to trial. He's like, uh, he, they're gonna put, he said, they're gonna put you on the stand and they're gonna blame you. They're gonna say, it's your fault. You didn't follow up. You didn't ask questions, you know, you don't, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh my God. He's like, yeah. He's like, it is very difficult to litigate these types of cases in Canada because we are not the United States. And the law, it favors the doctors. So he's like, and you know, it, it's gonna cost you money. And the reality, and the other part of it too, is he's like, we can, the most we can sue for under the law is your lost wages, which then your employer can sue you to recover because I'm on long-term disability with my employer. He's like, and maybe a small like pain and suffering settlement and court costs. He's like, so this is, he's like, it's a long haul and it's a lot of work for he's like very minimal return and I was I was like okay so just to, so I've got this clear in my head so the government has set it up so that taxpayers pay to protect uh, physicians that uh, are harming folks and the way the system is set up the legal part of it is there's a cap on how much you can recover. Yeah. So there's all these disincentives and roadblocks yeah. to actually getting justice. Yeah. Yeah. How much and justice so, can you afford? Yeah, the, to start the whole process, they needed a $5,000 retainer, which at that time was just unfeasible, you know, because you'd ha they would actually then go and retain a doctor of their own to do the research and review my files and come up with his own opinions and he was like you know the doctor can come back and say you know what there's no case here you know and you know you don't get that retainer back and so yeah and you know CMPA um, is you know it's funded by premiums from the doctors but the, at least in Ontario I'm not sure how the other provinces are working but in Ontario it's negotiated as part of their employment contract that the Ministry of Health pays the CMPA premium. So yeah, we essentially pay to protect the doctors that screw up. So, and you know, I mean, it's been in the news too. I mean, we all know that the College of Physicians and Surgeons, which is their regulatory body, has had some serious issues with discipline. So it's, it's tough. It's and you not, wonder how many other patients this uh, doctor has had that have had similar experiences. And yeah. if, you know, people aren't uh, pressing forward because the system is so against them, mm -hmm. how are they protecting patients from her and people like her? Uh, yeah, and that was my concern. You mm. know, it, it, he, I really took his words to heart and I asked myself, I'm like, do I want to put this much energy in and um, be locked into this battle for five years with, you know, money I don't have and, uh, or do I just want to, you know, move on, get better, get back to normal, whatever that means. And, you know, and I, one of my rules of life is like forgiveness is a gift you give to yourself. And so, and I, you know, she was, she, the care that I got her, you know, the way she listened to me and, and was there, um, 
always present in our appointments. I appreciated that. So I was willing to say, you know what, she made a mistake. Doctors are human. They're going to make mistakes. Uh, we ask them to be gods. We ask them to act like gods, but the reality is, is they're human. And, uh, you know, we need to move away from that, that, that um, mode of thinking where, you know, the doctor knows all and as patients, we need to be engaged. So, and I, you know, I should have asked more questions. I should have been more informed. You know, I'll take responsibility for my part. My big concern though is like, I need to know that she learned her lesson. I need to know that another woman who's gonna come through with maybe something similar or the same is not gonna go through what I went through. So I didn't go forward with litigation. I chose to file a complaint with the College of Physicians and Surgeons. Um, and so my complaint was based on she, ex, uh, she practiced outside of her area of expertise. You know, at that point, she made a decision that should have been made by an oncologist. She, um, she did not have a radiologist review any of my pictures. Um, so really, we didn't have, an, you know, she, she practiced without enough information. She made a decision with, that she shouldn't have that without it, enough information because she's not an oncologist. Um, she's just a gynecologist. And uh, so I, I sent off my complaint and that was the basis of my complaint is that had she, had I seen the, had I seen an oncologist when I was stage one, you know, my outcomes would have been, could have been vastly different. And, you know, she, she made this mistake. And when you go through the complaint process, you submit your complaint and then the physician has the opportunity to submit a rebuttal and then it goes to committee for review. So, um, but I also had a chance to respond to her rebuttal and provide additional evidence. So I got her rebuttal and I read it and I was gobsmacked because she basically contended, she goes, no, 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 she never had cancer. She never had cancer. She, the patient is lying. She never had cancer. I did nothing wrong. She never had cancer. She was diagnosed in 2015 by an oncologist. And she quoted four sources, which was an old textbook from the 80s and a bunch of articles from the 90s that all said, well, GCT can be benign. And I was like, are you kidding? I know, I was so angry. And, uh, and then she accused me of lying because she said, oh, her, because I submitted copies of all my medical records, which had this year missing from her chart notes. And she said, well, I don't know why she didn't submit it, but here you go. And she submitted it to the college. And I was like, well, and so my rebuttal was like, well, I've never seen the chart notes. She didn't, she withheld them from me. Um, I do, it was cancer. So, and here's my own call, you know, here's my oncologist's chart notes that says that it is cancer. And I went to my, my support group and I was so pissed and I was like this bloody da 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 da. And um, one of the members private messaged me and she's like, listen, I'm a lawyer at the International Criminal Court in The Hague. Let me help you write your response to her rebuttal. And I was like, God bless you. But, and that's, that's what makes like the cancer community is one of those clubs that you never want to join. But when you're in, you're, it's just, 
people are so loving and giving because you know what? We're all in the same place. We're all sick and we're all, you know, we, there's no ego. There's no, I'm sicker than you. No, it's all love. So she helped me draft my rebuttal where I had to go back and say, well, actually, here's 12 sources, just, you know, just a couple I scratched together, including the National Cancer Index, the World Health Organization's Cancer Classification Guide, which I'll say, uh, and all of them, of course, are within the last two to three years, that say it's malignant. And my doctor's note that said that this is a malignant and, um, in his, when I was first referred, he sent her a letter back, kind of summarizing the findings. And he, he said, he's like, we have no records of, because um, in her rebuttal, which is, sorry to backtrack, in her rebuttal, she said that she called the cancer center and spoke to my gynecologic oncologist. And he's the one who said it was benign and that I, she can track me in her office. And there was no records of that. And that's not the protocol because that, that's just not how it's done in Ontario. Anytime there's any finding of anything uh, that's potentially cancerous is you referred into an oncologist and you, you go through an assessment with an oncologist. The referral process is very, uh, you know, it's very structured that you, you get in a referral, they bring you in, they assess you, you have a chart created, there's chart notes for you, so there's a record, you know, there's privacy laws, there's medical information laws that they have to follow. So the fact that she called up somebody at the hospital and had a random conversation, that's, that's not going to cut it. Whether that happened or not, I don't know, because my doctor's like, I never talked to you. And I, we have no records of you calling the hospital. We have no records of a second pathology. We have no records of a referral. So uh, she had cancer and now she has cancer again. So that was his letter back to her, which I thought was kind of awesome because he, he, was, um, he was so unimpressed by her. And it's refreshing to hear that a doctor didn't try to protect his colleague as yeah. it seems to be the practice so often. Yeah. Um, and you know, what I've learned in my advocacy work in the cancer community is that especially with ovarian cancer, because the symptoms are so benign, like bloating and constipation and fatigue, you know, that's everybody, right? That it's not uncommon for people to fall through the cracks and, you know, be ignored or family doctors send them on without really diagnosing them or and you know so with ovarian cancer most patients are diagnosed late stage that's why our uh, the mortality rate is so high like it's only like 56 percent of women diagnosed will pass away within five years um, whereas you look at breast cancer which boobies are sexy there's lots of you know pink everywhere and their mortality rate is like 23%. I think it's even dropped even lower than that. Like it's, uh, it's vastly different. Um, so yeah, and I think oncologists see that, especially gynecologic oncologists, they really see that, you know, they do a lot of good work trying to educate the family doctors and even students to say, we're the experts, don't play God, send them along. We're the ones who know what to do. Um, but somehow the message isn't translating. So, but it was nice that he backed me up on that. So, um, you know, and I had a lot of evidence um, that I had collected and a lot of articles and I sent that forward and um, it went to committee uh, and they reviewed it. 
and it took a long time to get a response. I think six months later, I got the decision and it was interesting. It was kind of what I anticipated. It wasn't, it's was kind of like a slap and a kiss. So they, you know, uh, and that's the, the college, you know, they're doctors, they protect their own. Um, they sent her for remediation is what they said to me that she's completed remediation. So what does for, that mean? Um, they'll send you for further studies, right? So they, you know, um, uh, it's usually run uh, by the college where, I don't know, I guess it's like a detention for doctors where they make you review certain things, uh, you know, protocols, you have to prove to them that you've studied this again, that you've refreshed your knowledge, hmm. that kind of thing. Um, they made her change her practice so they said uh, she is no longer allowed to provide ultrasounds to patients in her office without a radiologist reviewing the images. Um, and, uh, but at, that was it. They were like, it's not clear whether or not, uh, you, you know, the outcomes would have been different if you had been diet, you know, prop, you know, if you had seen an oncologist the first time. They didn't really touch upon uh, whether the, the whole argument of whether it was cancer or not. Um, so it was like, okay, this is as good as I'm going to get, but at least she got the message, right? So if they made her change her practice, I wonder if they looked at other patients she's had that she was doing this wrong practice on. I'm going to guess no. No, I don't think it's within their scope. Right. Yeah. Why would we look at that? Yeah. Because it, it's very much a tribunal where they're adjudicating an individual case. Right. They're not looking at the doctor and seeing they're if she's look, competent yeah. or not. No. And then there's privacy laws that come into it where, you know, it's not that simple to just go into people's medical records and start reviewing without you know, without it being something broader, like it's different if it's a sexual abuse case mm -hmm. where there's gross negligence and there's the possibility of this person facing criminal charges um, as well as losing their license. We're, you know, it's, it's a different landscape. So um, you take what you can get. So you at one point were forgiving of her because she made a mistake. Yeah. And then how are you feeling about her now that you've gone through this process where she's saying that you're the liar and she's totally defending <laughs> herself? She's, she's, the, she's type number three. It was about ego and, you know. Um, so it sort of sounds like you can forgive her error, but it's harder to forgive her behavior yeah. in the complaint process. Yeah. I mean, I, my, the, my, the message was sent to her that what she did was wrong. I can only hope that she learned her lesson and that someone else, um, the fact that they made her change her practice to me was a huge win because yeah. at least then, um, at least then a radiologist is going to review those pictures and perhaps at that, you know, at that point there can be an intervention somewhere. Um, and hopefully the, with remediation, you know, maybe, you know, with, with, uh, with people who are so driven by ego, uh, you know, being slapped on the wrist once 
sometimes that is enough to be like, oh, I'm not going to, even if it's uh, kind of a like, oh, I'm not going to deal with this response, let them deal with it. That's fine. Send them on. That's all I want is send them on to the right person so that people get the right diagnosis in the beginning. Because with cancer, there's good drugs, but early diagnosis is prevention and early diagnosis makes the world of difference in prognosis, especially with ovarian cancer. So, and you know, like all along this whole process, this was a huge spiritual journey for me. And like I said, you know, forgiveness is a gift you give to yourself. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, the big, when, when you're diagnosed with something like cancer and you're facing your mortality, you know, you, bet you start to ask yourself questions like, you know, what's my purpose here? What do I want out of this life? What have I, what are my regrets? What are, and, uh, and so I, I grew a lot and I was like, you know, I want to leave this place better than I found it. But I also know like there's only so much I can do. So, and I said, okay, I, I went through the college. I did my part. So what else can I do to make sure this doesn't happen? So then I- Sorry, one, one other question before yeah. we move on to sort of the next part of your story is how important, if at all, would it be to you or would have been to you if she had have apologized? I don't know. That's a great question. And I really don't know because mm-hmm. it's, it's done, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's done. And you know, part of me too feels like it, it, you know, the spiritual part of me says it, it was, it was the way it was meant to be. Mm-hmm. It unfolded the way it meant to be. If it had unfolded any differently, maybe I wouldn't have had the opportunities that I've had. I met the people that I did. I don't know. This is, you just, you come to a place where you accept that this is my journey. This is how it unfolded the way it needed to be. So whether she said sorry or not, I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever be able to answer that question, to be honest. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Good question, though. So chronologically, we where are we now? You've got the, the decision from the College of Physicians. Yeah, that came at the end of uh, 2016. Uh, no. And how's your health during that? Um, was it 2016 or was 2017? I can't remember. Um, so I went through chemo and the disease started to progress. I finished chemo in July, 2017. And then the disease really accelerated. So, um, my left lung was full of fluid. I had about five liters of fluid in my abdomen. So I looked like I was nine months pregnant. Um, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't eat. I was exhausted all the time. I had vertigo, um, pain. So it was pretty bad. So we made the decision to go with surgery again. And I had to get my my lung drained first. So we did that. How did they do that? They, it's called a thoracentesis where they literally go in through the side in your rib cage and they just inject a little tube between your ribs into your lung and they pump out the fluid. 
and it's done with an it's ultrasound guided so it's kind of weird when you go into the OR because they put you under an ultrasound machine and there's all of these monitors and so you can see your lungs and all your bits and bolts and then they knock you out and you don't know what's happening so um yeah so that was fun but it was like and they took out two liters but at least I could breathe that was I remember waking up and I was like oh you know it's like when you get sick those little things are so luxurious you know you take we take for granted the simplest things like taking a deep breath unimpeded uh being able to walk or you know with cancer patients a lot of the drugs constipate you so this is tmi and i apologize but like not having to take a laxative to go to the bathroom that's a big win you know it's things like that you're like yes i'm on the mend um so but it was rough like i you know i couldn't walk i couldn't eat it was it was horrible by the time i rolled into the or in november 2017 i was ready i was i was I was like, I'm not going to last much longer if this keeps going because my liver was in distress. It was the, the tumor on my liver got, was growing and growing and growing. So it was, it was hard. And I you really were didn't. dying. I was dying. Yeah. Yeah. You try not to think of it that way because that really doesn't help your, you know, to get you through the day. But yeah, that's what it was. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. So I had another massive debulking this one was bigger than the last time because the volume disease of disease was a lot more and uh, they had to resect my liver they removed my spleen they resected my bowel but they were able to reattach it so i didn't have a bag um, and then they just cleaned out as much disease as they could see because really they can only take out what they see so if there there, there was microscopic disease left that they couldn't see um so unfortunately that was left behind but um yeah and they removed five liters of fluid it was unbelievable and because i had had abdominal surgery before um and they had to come up higher in the incision so basically they cut me from my breastbone down to my pelvic bone um, so I had about 170 staples, which was fun. And they also put these tension sutures in, which kind of look like big bungee cords that go right down into your abdominal cavity and kind of keep everything tight. So, um, so it was rough. I lost a lot of blood. Um, and uh, I don't wake up well from general anesthesia, but I woke up and they hadn't set up my epidural yet. So that was... That was fun too. <laughs> so that pain would be off the scales. It was horrendous. It's like every nerve in your body is on fire. Um, and everything is just raw. And, um, and I had to wear an abdominal binder as well to keep the incision closed. And that was, uh, that was painful. Like everything's, comp everything's sore and tender and on fire. And you've got this binder on, which is just like cut into my sides. And then it was, yeah, it was, that surgery was rough. I had a liver surgeon, two gynecologic oncologists in the OR with me. Uh, the, I was under for nine hours and uh, 
you know, I had the anesthesiologist, his assistant, his resident, plus four nurses in there. So it was a team. It was, it was a lot of people. But at that point, I was like, just, you got to get this out. You got like, you know, I can't, like, I'm dying. You need to save me. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, and other than the loss of blood, um, in my heart took a hit. It took, uh, I woke up and they, my heart rate was really elevated and it took months for my heart to get back to normal. So, uh, you know, resting heart rate for a woman my age is like 60, 65. My resting heart rate for about eight months after that surgery was about 95, 100. Wow. So it was, it was a scary time and you could feel your heart just working, working, working all the time. And that's common after a big surgery like that with general anesthesia. Um, so, yeah, but they were able to at least remove as much as they could see, which was good. And they were able to, they just basically cut out the section on my bowel that had the tumor and then reconnected it, which was awesome so that I didn't have to have a bag. Um, and everything else they were able to remove. And the, the liver too, your liver can grow back, which is awesome. So they were able to do that. So um, that surgery went well. It was just a rough uh, wake up. And, uh, it, you know, it was, it took a little bit longer to bounce back because I was under for so long. So, um, and unfortunately within two months, we just saw more disease. So, um, so that was January, 2018, January, 5th, February. Yeah. So, um, so at this point we know it's chronic, um, which and um at this point we're not hoping for a cure i mean we're always hoping for a cure you're always hoping but um you know we're looking more towards stability which is more realistic um and like i said i've met women who've lived 15 20 30 years with ovarian cancer breast can metastatic breast cancer brain cancer you know, and they're stable. So I have faith that we can do this. It's just finding the right combination of drugs. And that's taken a little bit of time. Um, you know, uh, my, my surgeon, um, my medical oncologist kind of retired and my surgeon was, over, was overseeing my case. And we, we did, we argued about what the next treatment would be because I, wanted to continue to try hormone therapy and I was adamant I was like from my conversation with my community I felt like we just haven't found the right drug and him being a scientist which I get he was like well we've tried this drug and it's in the same class so if that one doesn't work none of them will work I said no that's not true it's different chemistries so you, I said, we're just going to go through them all until we find the right one. That's what we do. And he, he and I didn't see eye to eye, which is actually usual. We, which, and I really respect my surgeon because he's so open to having these conversations and these arguments with me. Um, actually, it's my mother who gets angry with me because she's like, why don't you just listen to the doctor? I said, I am. We're having a conversation. Um, and, uh, you know, like I even, uh, 
2017, I went and sought a second opinion from an American hospital. And he, he I, you know, I brought the, the decision back and I gave it to him and he read it and he was like, okay, yeah, they have some good ideas. So let's, you know, we'll go into surgery. And then when you come out, we'll look at, you know, what we can do like this drug and we can try that drug. And I was like, okay, great. And a lot of them are not that open. They're not open to having someone else tell them, well, you know what? Yeah, this doesn't really work. What you should have been doing is this, this, and this. Because the standard for, of care for granulocele cell tumor in the U.S. is very different from here. We're, a little, we're very behind. So um, they have a lot more. Uh, so in, Can in Ontario, at least, I go for a CT every three months. Whereas in the U.S., they will track you via blood work. Um, there is, um, uh, there's a proteins that are uh, markers for granulocele cell tumor, inhibin A and inhibin B. And so in the U.S., they follow your inhibins. They test you every three months. So it's a $100 blood test versus a $1,500 CT. And, um, and then if they see elevations in your proteins, they will send you for a PET or a CT scan. So we're a little bit behind the ball here. So <laughs> We don't have PT machines for the most part, and OHIP doesn't cover inhibin tracking. So, because it's not part of the standard of care. Um, so, we just go, my doctor's like, whatever, we're just gonna have to scan you, which is not a great option because you're exposed to radiation and that there's always the risk of a secondary cancer. But when you have no choice, you do what you have to do. So, um, so yeah, so the last year and change has been just trying to find the right combination. And so we've tried a single agent hormone drug and that didn't work. Uh, we did a Vastin, which is a very expensive um, single agent drug. It's about $10,000 a dose. And yeah, and I didn't meet the funding qualifications. They have very, there's algorithms that um, dictate how drugs are funded. And I didn't meet the requirements for that funding algorithm. So thank goodness my private insurance covered it, but I did four rounds at $10,000 a dose and it didn't work. So um, after much argument, with my, my surgeon. And then they sent me back to another cancer center for a second opinion. We all agreed on um, trying another combination of hormone therapy. So uh, I started on tamoxifen last August. Tamoxifen, it suppresses all the estrogen in your body. And it's very commonly used with breast cancer patients. So once you've completed, the standard of care is once you've completed treatment, you'll do a regimen of tamoxifen for five years to prevent recurrence and it's very effective. So we tried that and that seems to work. So the smaller tumors that I have uh, stopped growing. The medium sized tumors have slowed down and the big ones, they're just being stubborn. So <laughs> they add, we've added another agent We've added Lupron, which is a, it suppresses, uh, it, it's a, it suppresses estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. So we're just basically kind of trying to shut down 
all the hormone production in my body. And it seems to be working as well, where we're seeing the ones that were growing uh, a little faster and the medium-sized ones that were slowing down, those are really starting to slow down. So awesome. good. So um, it's been a long journey. <laughs> And so how are you tolerating these multiple medications that you're on? Um, first round is always the hardest when you're introducing a drug and your body is just like, what is this? And um, in, so the tamoxifen was actually really tolerable and it's known to be very tolerable. The Lupron was difficult. The Lupron, it's a hard drug. You're basically shutting down your endocrine system. Um, and you know, that's just when you shut one part of your body down, like that means everything else has got to work a lot harder. And, uh, so it's tough. So the Lupron was a tough drug. It's, uh, you know, the first month I was in ER twice because they thought I had a blood clot in my leg. That was okay. No blood clot. Then they thought I had a blood clot in my lung. That was okay. But that was uncomfortable because I had shortness of breath and, you know, pain and headaches and nausea and, you know, pain in your bones, pain in your muscles, um, fatigue, fatigue. I mean, I've had fatigue, but this is something new. I can sleep 12 hours and then nap another four hours in the afternoon and still feel like I, I need to sleep for a week. It's unreal. So um, I'm starting to lose hope <laughs> that I'll ever go back to work because I don't, I, I can't get through the day without a nap. So, yeah, so, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm not, um, you have more meaningful things you're doing. I do. And that's one of the gifts that came out of this whole process is that, you know, that whole experience with that gynecologist, I was like, I need to do something. I, we need to, I need to do something, you know, and I hooked up with Ovarian Cancer Canada and they run an awesome program called survivors teaching students. So we go in um, to the medical school, like at, we've presented at U of T, we've presented at McMaster and uh, Western, um, and it's across the country. And we talk to medical students and we say, listen, here's my story. This is what happened. This is what she did. Don't do this, <laughs> you know? Uh, you know, when you go, because we want to get them when they're young. We want to get them before they get into their careers and they're overloaded and they're compassionately fatigued and their resilience is low. You know, we want to put that idea in their head from the start about what this is and what they should do, um, you know, what the symptoms are. and. You know, and it's become, a, and, and the kids want it. It's awesome when we go in there and we tell our stories, how they're, they, you know, they ask such great questions and, you know, they're hungry for that experience of what is it going to be really like when I talk to a patient, right? Like when I'm in a clinical room and what do I do? And so there's a real appetite for that. And so we present to medical students and nurses. And then through that, I've also done a lot of advocacy work in the ovarian cancer community uh, with from pharmaceutical companies. And I've had the opportunity to travel and speak at different conferences, just, just telling my story. You know, I, I think I'm a perfect example of what not to do. Um, I've met, you know, we have other speakers that are great examples of how it was handled right. Um, so we have a little bit of everything. So, and it was, so that was really, um, that was, 
you know, so out of this came all these great opportunities. I was on the radio. They've been, I've been interviewed on the radio. Uh, I got to walk in Toronto Fashion Week. Like I got to do some cool stuff, right? And then I also hooked up with Cancer Care Ontario, and I'm a patient and family advisor with them. And we do a lot of, I do a lot of work with them for psychosocial care. Because what I, you know, I had a great counselor at the hospital, um, but it was that whole, you know, when you're done chemo and then they kind of send you on your way and you're like, oh my God, what do I do now? And trying to put some more um, emphasis, like trying to raise the profile of psychosocial services because I really, it's one of the first programs, anything mental health, it's the first one to be cut, but it's the real most essential program because um, it's, you know, can illness in general i don't care if it's cancer or anything else when you're ill it is a physical and emotional and spiritual illness it affects all parts of who you are all parts of your life you know it's it's uh it's like you have this existential angst all the time you're grieving you're sad you're angry you don't you know who you are what you my whole life purpose changed right i grew up in a european family right you, you grow up you go to school you get a job you get married you have kids and then when you're 65 that's when you can retire and then eventually you die like that's life right and it's like wait a minute i want something different and you know coming to peace with some of my childhood wounds like this whole I went on, like it embarked me on this whole healing journey that was, that's been amazing. It's been tough, but it's amazing. And then, you know, and I do, and when I do a lot in the cancer community, so I've got to meet incredible people. I've met people who are more family than my own family in some ways, right? Um, you connect and you bond and you do, and I try to do as much as I can. So in a way, I mean, out of this horrible tragedy, came a lot of good. And I've even noticed in my own family, because there's an Aboriginal legend that when you heal yourself, you heal seven generations behind you and seven generations ahead of you. So I've focused on healing my soul. I'm like, I can't heal my body, but I'm going to heal my soul. And I truly believe that when your soul, when you're, when you carry around these emotional and spiritual wounds, it really does affect your physical body. And if you ever read like someone like Lois Hay who talks about dis-ease, uh, so when you're holding on to all this anger and this rage and, you know, these, all this programmed notions of what we should be and what our lives should be, you know, and it just, it, all that negative energy kind of brings you down. So having gone through all of this and, and growth and, you know, becoming a really resilient and strong and brave, I've healed my family. Like we, even my mom said to me the other day, she's like, we communicate so much better now. It's too bad you have to get sick for this to happen. I said, I know, but we, you know what? Let's just be grateful that we're here, right? Let's just, you know, we communicate better. We're closer, uh, when, you know, which is amazing, right? We weren't like that before, you know? We, my brother got married and had kids and he had his life and, my parents are divorced now, so they, there's, they're separate lives. We're all kind of, you know, come together for Christmas. You know, we're all kind of busy. And then I got sick, 
And we all were like, we have to come together. And we kind of came back to each other as a family and really, you know, supporting and loving and communicating in a really positive way. So that, I mean, if I'm, I'm happy, I'll take, I'll take the cancer, you know, if, you know, if it came, if I wouldn't trade it for anything because all these great things have happened and, you know, maybe we would have gotten there without it, but this is my journey. So. Wow. Wow, you're such uh, an inspiration. Uh, and to be in this particular headspace and sort of spiritual space at this point is really remarkable. And I, I must say, I think you're the only other person who I've heard say, because I've often said HIV is the best thing that's ever happened to me. Yeah. And you're essentially saying the same thing. So it, it, echoes, it echoes especially for me, for others, it must seem like an extremely odd statement to say. Yeah, yeah. I was, um, which is funny, is total tangent, but I was at the hairdresser and I said to him, ah, oh, you know what, let's do something funky. Let's go wild. Let's shave the side of my head, let the rest grow and whatever. And there was a woman next to me who had long, beautiful, long, luxurious hair. And she looked at me, she's like, oh my God, you're so brave. Because I said, oh, it's hair. If I don't like it, it'll grow. I know it will, because I've lost it twice before, and it always came back. And so, but she was so serious. Oh, my God, you're so brave. I was like, are you, ki are you kidding me? You know, it's your perspective shifts. And that's the, that's the gift of cancer, is that you just, you realize that, you know, man, none of it, all, of, all this stuff, that we put so much importance on, like the house, the car, the clothes, and the hair, and the make, it doesn't matter. You know, that you learn that, you know, you learn not to take things personal. Everybody's, you know, everybody has wounds that they're trying to deal with. Everybody's struggling in their own way. Um, and when you learn, you know, you put that aside and you can connect with people in such a deep and meaningful way, it is in a way like it's so liberating. I feel freer and happier and more joyous as a, as a woman now having gone through all this than I was before. I was a very miserable young person when I was walked into that clinical room. And I'm to me, I like the person I am now. I like her a lot more than I did before. And, um, and my, my definition of brave is very different, but um, it was just, it was like a mirror, like none of this matters. What ma you know, and when you're sick too, you realize that, you know, you can't take any of this stuff with you. And all you really want is to have the people who love you around you. So, you know, even right, like, even the way we do Christmas has changed because we're like, you know what, we don't want gifts. We just want time together. Let's create memories. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a great, it's been a, it's been a wild ride, not going to lie, but it's been good. I've learned so much. It's just, I've just, I think I've just accepted that this is how my life was meant to unfold. Mm -hmm. And when you embrace that and you allow it to make you better instead of bitter, you know, there's not much I can't deal with. So, which is awesome. I think we're going to have to call your episode the gift of cancer. Absolutely. 
it's very compelling, provocative statement. It is. It's not, and not everybody um, would see it that way. No. Right? no. <clears throat> it is. It is. Uh, I and I understand that, and I don't. You know, and I I'm open and I speak my truth, but I also understand that not everybody is at that point. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you had talked to me three years ago, I, you know, I, my message would have been different, right? Yeah. Well, Kellyanne has certainly framed her experiences to add quality to her life, as opposed to wallowing in anger and self-pity. Forgiveness of someone who has so negatively impacted your quality of life is not an easy journey. Forgiveness is easier said than done. Thank you, Kellyanne, for sharing your experiences. And thank you for the advocacy work you do for the cancer community. If you need a counselor for your own medical error experience or living with chronic illness or LGBT issues or any of life's challenges, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me at my website, remediescounseling.com. If you'd like to support the podcast by becoming a patron, you can go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms and leave a kind comment. Thank you for listening to this episode of Medical Error Interviews. And I ask you, what is something nice that you can do for yourself today?